You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. For 10 years, across a thousand episodes and a quarter billion listens, my podcast has elevated what you knew about the capabilities of your mind and body. And because we're at the 10-year anniversary, I'm evolving Bulletproof Radio even further in my plan to upgrade humanity. And I'm evolving myself as well. I invite you to expand your knowledge, explore your performance, and embrace your possibility with The Human Upgrade. You'll meet bright thinkers and radical doers who push the boundaries of science, technology, personal development, and human performance in every way imaginable. Every guest you listen to, every topic you learn about, Every new idea you discover on this podcast is there to move you forward. Join me on this next evolution to upgrade your mind, body, and life. And be sure that you're subscribed to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey on your favorite podcast platform so you hear every single episode. My commitment to you is that the time you spend with me on The Human Upgrade will always return more value to you than you spent on it. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey, formerly Bulletproof Radio. Today is something I've been looking forward to for a long time because it is an interview with one of my favorite living authors and a guy who has had a huge, huge effect on my career without even knowing it, although I've mentioned (laughs) it to him before. I'm talking about none other than Robert Greene, who is the author of a very famous book called 48 Laws of Power, something that I've heard has been banned from some prisons because uh, people who read it were actually uh, using it to get influence in ways that they wouldn't. He's had a series of books, books like Mastery, The Art of Seduction, all of which are just masterfully written and contain keys to how humans work. These are all of his books are those things that should be on everyone's reading list. If I'd had all this knowledge when I was 25, oh man, uh, the things I would have done. (laughs) So hard earned knowledge from a master. Today, we're going to talk about his new book called The Daily Laws. Robert, my friend, it is always an honor to get a chance to spend time with you and to interview you. Thanks for being here. I feel the same, Dave. It's equally an honor to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Well, last time you were on the show, we talked about the fact that you'd had a stroke. How are you yes. doing? You look like you're stronger. You're moving around better. Are you recovering? Uh, I am definitely better than when I last spoke with you. I don't remember exactly when that was. I think it was a couple of years ago. Um, so, yeah, but I'm not as far as I'd like to be. I'm, I'm having to deal with the fact that my walking is still a bit wonky. I can't like go outside my house and take a nice walk up the hills. So on the one hand, it's getting better. On the other hand, I'm kind of frustrated that it's not going faster. All but, right. We can talk after the show. I have some ideas for you uh, okay. that would probably accelerate that. I, um, I can I'm always open to your ideas. All right. Yeah. That, I, I bet there's a couple of people in my network who can accelerate this and a couple of technologies. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll take a couple minutes at the end. And all right. All right. In the meantime, you're kind of a big deal on TikTok now, right? <laughs> uh, I kind of fell into that, you know. Uh, there's probably should be an age limit on who can be on TikTok, and I'm well past that age limit. But I have people who are not, uh, you know, who are much younger than me who are kind of managing it. 
because they understand the medium. I don't really totally understand it. But yeah, I've got like, I don't know, 400,000 followers now on TikTok. <laughs> Who knew, you know? But did, I, uh, I love it. Did you have to get TikTok pants or anything like that or you're okay? What are TikTok pants? <laughs> Inappropriately <laughs> tight <laughs> pants that look like you're not wearing pants at all. Uh, <laughs> or no, so I hear. I'm not good. into TikTok either, but good on me. I, I've heard about TikTok pants from various others. So I'm just going to say I don't that's have a pair either, of, but. That's how the loop I am. I didn't even know that TikTok pants existed. So uh, apparently they do, uh, and they're probably something you can't unsee. So <laughs> there you okay. go. Anyway, congratulations on reaching uh, um, a great audience there as well. Yeah, um, you do something better than uh, better than actually any other author that I've come across. I'm just I'm trying to think. Maybe there's like the Napoleon Hill stuff going way back. But you take stupendous amounts of information and you distill them down into something that, that's readable and actionable in a way that's, that's pretty magic. So lots of research and all that stuff. Uh, and I, when I look at a book, I say, how many hours of the author's time did you compress into how many hours? And there's a ratio. <laughs> and you could listen to this show where, yes, there's, you know, whatever, eight hours of prep work on my side. You already have your lifetime of prep work. But it's it's not as structured as writing your book. So the ROI on your book is always going to be higher than a conversation unless the nugget we need just happens to come out in the conversation. Right. How, how do you compress them that way? Like, like how do you do this? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'll be violating one of the 48 laws of power, <clears throat> power, which is to never reveal your own tricks or your own method. <laughs> but um, basically... You know, it's sort of, I've kind of created, it's kind of like a hack that I've created over the years, beginning with the 48 Laws of Power. You know, it's sort of, I've kind of created, it's kind of like a hack that I've created over the years, beginning with the 48 Laws of Power. So, you know, I, I read lots of books. I take copious notes. I have a note card system. And then when it comes to writing the story or the ideas or the philosophy behind it, I try and compact things to get to get to the essence of it, right? To get to what I think is the actual kernel of truth and cutting away all of the extraneous material. So when I read other people's books, I'm kind of going, I don't need to know that. What's the point of that? It's not adding anything. Mm -hmm. It's kind of detracting because it's distracting. So, for instance, when I tell a story, um, like in the Laws of Human Nature, about the original Rockefeller who kind of created Standard Oil in his empire, you know, I'm dealing with four or five different books, but I'm always searching for those little kernels of, of, of that reveal something essential about the person's character. It takes a lot of legwork, much more than you'd ever imagine. And then I find that and I have to put it together. And so that is one element of the compression that we're talking about, just honing in on the exact details that are necessary to tell a story or the exact ideas that I need to communicate. Then the second form of the compression comes from my neurotic compulsion to edit, to rewrite, to rewrite, to rewrite, to rewrite, to rewrite, until I feel like I've arrived at the truth. So if you saw my first draft, you go, whoa, this isn't very interesting at all. Starts to get, you know, I'm compressing it down further and further until I get to what I think is the core 
what I need to express. So I think, I don't know if I've explained it exactly correctly, but that's kind of, kind of my process. So, so you have this very large top of the funnel where you're gathering all sorts of information by reading a yeah. lot. You're taking yeah. notes along the way. And it seems yeah. like you've downloaded your note card system to Ryan Holiday, who I know was one of your lead researchers for 48 Laws yeah. of Power. And yeah. if you look at Ryan's books, I love his books because they're also information dense and there aren't a lot of wasted words. So it seems like yeah. that technology, not technology, technique uh, for doing that, it's, uh, that's a precious thing. And, and that's something that I want to see you write a book about, you know, the, the laws of well, saying shit that matters. Can you write that book? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll try. I'll try. But one one thing I left out, I, um, just to go back for one second, the note card system itself is the major form of compression, I have to say. Okay. So, um, you know, when I read a book, um, usually I find most books are not organized very well and it kind of irritates me. So when I read something on page 10 and I wrote it down on a note card and then I find the same idea, similar idea expressed differently on page 265, I'm able to take all of the ideas that are spread out in a book in kind of this dispersed manner and give it kind of an edge or kind of a concentrated form through the note cards that I take. That makes uh, that makes so much sense. And I, I credited you in, in the book Game Changers that I wrote, but the structure of 48 Laws of Power is what led me to structure my book that way. My information gathering was yeah. from interviews and surveys and statistically analyzing results and then writing laws, a, a different, not your note card system, but uh, just wanted to acknowledge that here as well. That, uh, well, not it's, only, it's a great book. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, the fact that you read it. Hey, thank you. Um, yeah. But the the notion there that, okay, you you gathered all the info, but then you somehow, oh, 48 laws, and I'm going to, you know, organize it this way um, was really cool. And then that that structure seemed to stick with you for your other books. Um, was yeah. that structure something that you just kind of figured out on your own when you wrote the book there? You know, it's, David, it's, we're going back 25 years now yeah. to when I first started the book. So I can't completely remember exactly okay. what was going on in my mind at the time, but there were some other kinds of books that kind of influenced it. Things like the I, the I Ching that I used to do a lot back in the day um, that had like the 48 hexagrams, right? Mm, and were broken up into sections. I think unconsciously I was thinking of something like that. But it, it's more how my brain works. It's kind of a reflection of my brain for better or for worse. You know, I don't, I don't generally think of things in this kind of seamless fashion. I like breaking things up into different kind of categories, right? So I naturally hit upon this idea of telling a story and then and then kind of interpreting it afterwards as opposed to putting it inside the story. I like things that are kind of neat and self-contained, right? Yeah. And so and then um I don't know there are books from like the 19th century etc where they would have things on the margin so I remember reading this French writer that I really love. He wrote an essay about Leonardo da Vinci. And on the margins, he had notes that went kind of into another direction about what he, he was almost commenting on, on the essay that he had written. I thought that oh, was yeah. very brilliant, and very kind of complex and interesting. So I'm someone who's kind of obsessed with structure and form, almost to like a schizophrenic level. You know, I just obsess <laughs> with how things are structured, right? 
And I can sometimes get lost in that. But it fascinates me how to construct something that is new and different that reflects my peculiar way of looking at the world. And so the 48 laws sort of initiated the whole thing. Well, if, if you think about it, Robert, uh, you've probably sold more than 10 million books, I would just guess. Worldwide or in the United just States? Worldwide. Oh, oh, much more than that. Uh, there you go. Okay, so so much more. Sorry. And, <laughs> I no, no, brag, it's but... all right. Hey, I, I'm, I'm almost up to a million books. So I'm, you know, I, I'm in awe of 10 million. Uh, and, yeah. But you know, give me time. Uh, I'll learn some more from you and, and others. But <laughs> it, it's not about exceeding a certain number. It's that let's say it's 25 million. Each of those books takes what, at least 12 hours to read, 10 hours to read. The number of hours of human lives that you've consumed with your writing is like a hundred thousand lifetimes of just reading, right? <laughs> so your structure damn well better be good. Otherwise you've just wasted a huge number of lives, right? And I, I do yeah. just kudos for the way you do it. The reason I'm kind of obsessed about this is that your new book doesn't follow the structure of all your other books. I know. Right, but it's actually, I think, better. What you did is you went through and you distilled your other books, which are already distilled. So you went from, you know, high grade tequila in the other books and said, "Let me just make them into Everclear, and let me make it a daily shot of Everclear." Is that a, is that a good analogy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. You know, because I understand that I tend, I can be a little bit long winded. You know, like somehow the human, laws of human nature expanded to five hundred and sixty five pages. But it's so you know, worth it. That's and, such a great book. I, I love that book. So oh, oh, well, don't feel you. bad about the length. It was worth every page. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to hear. But, um, you know, some people, I, I noticed that my shortest book, which was the uh, 50th law that I did with 50 Cent and Mastery, which is relatively short, a lot of readers really gravitated to that, right? So I wanted to create something that was a little simpler to handle and that kind of took all of the the most salient kind of hard-hitting ideas scattered through six books and put them in one book in, in your, your idea of a, of a very distilled shot of tequila or Everclear, what is it called? Yeah, Everclear is um, the 95% ethanol is as distilled as you can get it. Oh, the moonshine, okay. basically. Twice as strong as tequila, oh, okay. which is already pretty strong, which is you know, going to be oh. 40% alcohol. Oh, okay, I see. So yeah, I wanted to get to that 90% alcohol. But also... I did want to structure it. So it's not like a greatest hits, you know, it's not like the Grateful Dead greatest hits from all the live concerts or anything. Basically I gave it a kind of an order and the order is, you know, starting with your career and your life, how to look at yourself and where you're going for the first three months in the next three months. Now, how do you deal with people in a political setting? Like you're in an office and you've got toxic people around you and then how you become better at influence and persuasion and getting people interested in your ideas. And finally, how to kind of sum all of that up with a superior knowledge of human nature, et cetera. So there is a kind of a logic and an order to it, but it's not too tight where it gets kind of irritating. It's kind of a loose structure. So, yeah. Okay. That makes, uh, that makes a ton of sense. I, I really like that. Uh, and you mentioned toxic people. It seems yeah. like we have more of a problem with that. And, and just to set context for everyone listening, uh, there's 12 things here that you, you can talk about. Each month centers around a major theme, things like self-control, human nature, toxic people, uh, power and seduction and persuasion. Um, 
It feels like though that this toxic people thing it has become a, a bigger issue lately. We have all sorts of divisions in society and all, uh, and we have people who are shaming other people for you know all sorts of of things that probably aren't worthy of shame. What is your number one strategy for dealing with toxic people? I know you've written chapters and books on it and all, but if, if we were to well, offer some real value to people, what would it be? Well, it's, the, it's very simple, is learn how to avoid dealing with them or learn how to avoid, recognize them before they get enmeshed in your life. What is your number one strategy for dealing with toxic people? I know you've written chapters and books on it and all, but if, if we were to well, offer some real value to people, what would it be? Well, the, it's very simple, is learn how to avoid dealing with them or learn how to avoid, recognize them before they get enmeshed in your life. Yeah. Because as I point out in the laws of human nature, people who are truly toxic, and we're talking about like narcissists, people who are very passive, aggressive, enviers, they don't come with a billboard announcing that they're toxic, right? They've learned through their whole life strategies on how to appear the opposite. So they wear a mask of being very charming, being very pleasing, of being interested in your ideas, being very charismatic. You hire them, you partner with them, you marry them. And then lo and behold, six months down the road, you start seeing other signs of that character leaking through the toxic part. Now, it could be sooner than that, but sometimes it takes a while. And then now you're emotionally invested in them. You have a relationship. They're working for you. They're your business partner. And they're playing all kinds of mind games with you. They're doing push and pull. They're making you feel like you're the, that you're the problem, that they're the victim. They're very good at turning things around. And then to disengage from them becomes really traumatic. It's like trying to pull out all the weeds in your garden. It takes massive amounts of work because they're everywhere, right? They're in all aspects of your, of your inside of you. They inhabit you. And so it can take months and years for you to recover from a relationship with a very powerful, toxic individual. And so the best strategy of all, it's like Sun Tzu's strategy. The best way to win a war is to win it without any bloodshed. Your strategy is so perfect that the enemy collapses before a single um, arrow is shot, you know? So the best strategy is not to get involved with these people, to recognize them. And to recognize them is not easy. I'm never saying it's easy because they're That's masters. Right. They are masters at disguise, right? And they play on your emotions, and, and we're very weak that way. But there are always signs for recognizing them. And I sort of give you kind of lessons in the book. So I tell you, for instance, to pay attention to the patterns in their life to look at what went on before. So if you're gonna hire somebody, look at their past and go into that deeply and see the patterns in them. Pay deep attention to their nonverbal things. So I tell people, for instance, a toxic narcissist, they seem very interested in you. They're talking to you. Oh, this person isn't a narcissist, but their eyes, their eyes are kind of dead. They're not really engaging and connecting with you on a deep human level. They're just simply trying to get information from you that they can use later on. It's not, it's fake empathy. You can recognize that if you tune yourself to nonverbal behavior. And we humans have a hard time doing that because we've become so verbal that we just are just like hypnotized by people's words that we fail to, to look at their actual body language. But the, you can't fake 
things with your voice, for instance. You can kind of fake your eyes and some of your facial expressions, but your voice will reveal that you're nervous, that you're not being genuine, that something else is going on. So, you know, I talk a lot in, that, in the laws of human nature about how to kind of master the art of deciphering people's nonverbal behavior. Um, if only I would have known these things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have done all the things you listed at, at the beginning of that about, you know, partnering with marrying, uh, taking investment from hiring oh, all the above. Right. And by the time you figured out unwinding it is tens to hundreds of times more work. And so it's developing as a kind of a spider sense. And the funny thing is in every one of those situations, I had the, the little spider sense that said, you know, something's not right. Uh, I'm thinking of an example where someone came to the first biohacking conference when I was just creating the field. And, you know, I want to work with you, I want to work with you. But there was that deadness uh, in his eyes and all that stuff. And um, so since that time, that person has copied almost every episode that I've ever had. In fact, you'll probably, as soon as this goes live, you'll probably get a phone call the next day asking if he'll be on that show. And this is like eight years later. <laughs> and literally, you have to tell, me who, you have to tell me who this is. Uh, no, I, it's, it, it's not about right. revenge or anything like that. But it's, right. it's one of those things where, you know, five times the person's called and said, why is it you won't go to a conference where I am? I'm like, because you stab me in the back every time, man. Like, I have clean boundaries. I, I, you know, and then there's the how do I make it right? And here's a list of things you can do to make it right every single time. He tells himself he did the list, but he didn't actually do the list. And then I call him on it and he gets all, uh, and then runs away. What is it in people that makes them believe that they did things that they didn't do. Well, uh, God, if I knew, if I had the perfect answer to that, I would be a <laughs> multi-billionaire. I mean, you're asking me to solve the riddle of, of human misery. Yeah. Um, well, you're as well, close as very... anyone I know. <laughs> so I want to hear, hear what you think, man. <laughs> well, we're very good at cognitive dissonance, at, at confirmation bias. I mean, it's sort of how I look at it in a way. So... We're invested in believing what we already want to believe in, right? Yeah. So if information comes in that doesn't, that's kind of discordant with that, that maybe we're not listening to Dave's list or whatever, that we're not actually enacting it, our first reaction, human reaction, is not, hmm, I've got to reassess myself and my, my own consciousness and how I respond to people. No, our first reaction is to get defensive. Well, Dave has a problem. Dave isn't really listening. Dave is a narcissist himself, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, lots of people the, think the that. Pod, they, well, they only think that because I'm so good, just to be really clear. All right, keep going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, people think that about me as well, so don't exactly. worry about that. Um, so we want to believe what we already believe, so we're going to go down that path. We're going to tell ourselves, because the hardest thing for a human being to do, or one of the hardest things is to be self-aware, to actually yeah. look inside oneself and say, this is what's really going on. I'm fooling myself. And we are masters at self-deception. So in the 48 Laws of Power, I talk about deception and con artists. But mm -hmm. in Laws of Human Nature, it's almost about self-deception, how we're con artists with ourselves, how we create an image of ourselves as being you know, morally right, being a good person, being intelligent, being rational being empathetic, whereas in fact, we're, we're usually quite far below that ideal. And so for someone like this 
this imitator or whatever, however I would call him, to actually step back and analyze himself and say, am I really doing what Dave is asking? It's a step that's very difficult for people to take. It has to become a habit in your life, right? Because your default position is to always look externally and blame other people. Well, that is, that is a lot of knowledge there. And it highlighted something uh, that I've noticed over the arc of your books. Uh, you started out very external with the laws of powers. Like how do you gain power in the world around you? And as you evolved all the books, they got more and more. How do you gain power and control over what's going on inside of you? Maybe in service of power outside of you, but it, it became more and more focused on the self. Have you have you reached that? Or is there another even deeper book where you go spiritual, transcendent, uh, omega, alpha, quantum, you know, kiss a leprechaun kind of thing? <laughs> I don't know. Um, is there another step forming in there? <laughs> yeah, it's coming out. It's going to be my eighth book. It's what I'm working on right now. <clears throat> it's a book that's temporarily titled The Law of the Sublime. It's kind of going into ideas that I talked about in the last chapter of human nature about confronting our mortality and being looking at, at our, our death, the death that we face straight in the eyes and somehow kind of distilling some kind of wisdom and beauty from that, which I call the sublime. So I'm, I'm deeply, deeply working on that book right now. And it's going to be a very different book from anything I've ever created. So the answer to your question is yes, I am doing that leprechaun book. <laughs> Uh, I am. We can talk about it more whenever you want to. And in fact, in the daily laws, I have some excerpts from the book that I'm working on now about the from the first two chapters of it. Excellent. Uh, I love it that we're getting a little bit more organic, just in our ability to publish and write and share and things like that. So it's possible to do that now. If you go back to when even my first book came out, which was many years after your first first book came out, the publishing process was so clunky. There's no way you could have done that. Right. Uh, um, so people can get a, a taste of it. Um, the the notion that you're going more and more inward to get self-aware, what does someone do if, if they say, all right, we're doing a, a meditation or some neurofeedback or plant medicine, whatever the heck, their breath work, whatever, whatever made them go, aha, I've got, you know, I, I deceive myself, right? And, and they become aware of it. How do you recommend someone go about making it right when you realize that you... You basically told yourself something that wasn't true and then acted on it. Well, the uh, awareness is almost a value in and of itself. So having the knowledge in your mind that's now kind of rooted in some way that I have this pattern of self-deception. So the first thing you have to realize that when you come to terms with the fact that on this one instance, you did deceive yourself, you were blaming the other person, but that you were at fault understand the basic principle of human nature. Nobody ever does something once, right? Just once. There's going to be a pattern. So you have deceived yourself on that front several times. Maybe it's a pattern in your life. Maybe you've done it many times. Who knows? So first of all, realize that it probably has roots in you. And human behavior in our own lives tend to follow into these patterns. And I discussed that the laws of human nature and explain why that happens and why we're kind of prisoners of fate in some ways. So awareness of your own patterns now gives you the power in the moment that you catch yourself doing it to say, aha, Robert, 
you're deceiving yourself again. You're you're focusing on the other person when actually you were the one to blame, you know. And I recently caught myself in that. Uh, so I, I practice these things on myself, you know, kind of like Tim Ferriss does those things on himself. I do it on myself. Yeah. So the other day I had an interview with somebody and they were, the interview was a little, I'm not going to name names and please don't sure. look this up. The interview was a little bit sharp. I felt like this person was kind of attacking me, although they were smiling and everything was pleasant, but I felt like they were trying to trip me up and kind of reveal that I contradict myself. I'm going, damn, what, what is, why is that? Because I, I thought I was friends with this person. Mm. And then I started thinking, uh, no, Robert, maybe you did something that caused it. So I'm aware of my pattern of always externalizing and finding the other person to be wrong. And then I realized that maybe some of my own behavior, some of my own communication with this person was kind of triggering certain emotions that would lead them to now want to like, upset me in some way that I had perhaps created some envy inadvertently, you know, and that I could have controlled some of my communications better, etc. So simply aware of your own patterns gives you the power to now uh, uh, change them, right? So you, it's just like the toxic person thing. The key is to recognize them before they happen. The key here is to recognize in the moment that that process is going on. That is the most, that is almost enough in and of itself, I think. It's also like your reaction is to get emotional when somebody says something, right? Mm -hmm. To get angry, for instance, get triggered. If you develop the habit in the moment of understanding that you have that propensity, you can now give yourself a little, a little lapse of 10 seconds where you calm down, where you don't react, and then that will allow you to not react. And the next time it'll be 20 seconds. So developing the pattern of being aware of your own patterns is to me almost enough. Very, very well said. And you mentioned envy in there. And in the laws of human nature, you described envy and both how to spot it in others and in yourself in the best way I've seen in any book, including a bunch of books on narcissism and all, because I've been studying this, just trying to understand why have I made some of the hiring decisions I've made in the past and oh, how wow. is it these people can, you know, how can these people come in and, you know, just trash things and just like pollute a culture I, and all. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a book here, Dave. I'm feeling like you could write a very oh, interesting I'm, book on this. I've already got a title. I'm okay. Uh, I'm, okay. So my publisher sure. says, no, no, so my next book will be not quite that one, but I might write this one in at the same time because it's it's like it's okay. ready. I already know it's already all in my head. Okay. So okay. You're, you you read my mind there, Robert. Yeah, yeah. there is one. Um, but I do have to just say what you wrote about envy there to spot it in yourself was was really cool. And I've even taken a few of those ideas in a couple of the lectures when people are stuck on MB at 40 years of Zen, my neuroscience thing. And I'll actually say, you know, according to Robert, here's, here's what's going on with you with MB. Right. Uh, so I, I love it that you mentioned it there. And you're also, as I recall, a fan of Abraham Maslow, right? Yeah. And you yes, went I out am. and you figured out that early in life he was in a bed or something. If my memory serves, uh, so he was, am I getting this right from one of your early books that he was? I think, I think you might be thinking of Milton Erickson. 
Uh, oh, I'm, I'm confusing him with Erickson. You're totally right. They're both old psychologists. You're right. It's Erickson, but well, you're a fan of both. Well, okay. I, Sorry. <laughs> uh, but I'm more of a, I mean, I like Abraham Maslow, okay. but I adore Milton Erickson. He is like a god to me. He's amazing. Uh, and these are people who are cracking the code of what, what's going on in our heads before you or I uh, were, you know, where we are now. Um, your new book that's coming out next um, after The Daily Laws about the law of the sublime. Uh, Scott Barry Coffin was on the show recently and he said, hmm, I've read everything that Maslow didn't publish. And yeah, his yeah. final phase was transcendence. That's something that's right. necessary for humans. And here you are right. getting to the same place with you know the law of the sublime, very similar territory right. there. Yeah. Do you think that's a necessary part uh, of being a human? Is that is that part of our hierarchy of needs? For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30, and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. And here you are getting to the same place with you know, the law of the sublime, very similar territory there. Do you think that's a necessary part uh, of being a human? Is that, is that part of our hierarchy of needs? I think so. And I very much delved into it. I want to find out the origin. And my, my sense of it is the way I write about it. And of course, I could be wrong is that it has roots that go back hundreds of thousands of years to the point where humans first became conscious of their world, right? So other animals are obviously aware of, of space and space around in their environment. We're the only animals that are conscious of time, right? We're aware of the passage of time in a way because we're aware of our own mortality. And whenever that moment happened, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, was a turning point in our evolution. And so we looked up in the sky and we began to imagine something like eternity, like endless space and endless time. And we were kind of awestruck by it. And we, were, we felt very small in relationship to everything around us. And so we had to kind of find a way to tame to sort of deal with our insignificance in some way. And that's sort of in some sense, the origins of religion, although I am truncating things horrifically right now. <laughs> but anyway, um, so embedded in us is the knowledge of our essential insignificance, 
right? In the sense of, yes, spatially, but also time-wise, that our meager little 80 years of existence, if we live that long, compared to 13 billion years of, of the ex existence of our universe as far as we know, is, you know, the, the proportions are just impossible for us to even begin to, to measure, to gauge. It's beyond our comprehension. And so that sense of awe and kind of insignificance at the same time is to me the essence of the sublime. And the idea that we want to somehow transcend the limits of our own life, the banality of our own life, that we only have this short time to live, that our childhood and our youth passes and that we're continually just taking one step closer to death is deeply, deeply embedded in human nature. And so where I take this a step further is I talk about the false sublime. It's so embedded in our nature to want to transcend our circumstances that if you can't find your way to do that in some, I hate to use the word healthy, but I will go ahead and use that word healthy way, you'll find it in other ways, inevitably, because you can't avoid this need. You will take drugs you will, in, in a bad way, because there is a, take drugs in a good way. You will become an alcoholic. You will become addicted to online porn. You will join some political cause where you'll be able to vent all your spleen and anger and <laughs> hatred about people without ever having to look at yourself. You will find your way to transcend yourself in a false way, like through the group, you know, like in a, in a kind of a fascist way or whatever. So you can't avoid this dynamic, this desire for transcendence. It will find you in some way. So, so well said. Are you feeling hopeful for the state of the world right now? I wish I was. I wish I was feeling hopeful. I mean, I remember 20 years ago, somewhere like that, I had a dream. And I mean, literally a dream, not, not a, you know, not in a Martin Luther King sense. I had a dream in which it was like the year 2070 something. And I can remember very, and I was walking, you know, as if I were still at my age at that time in this world that was 2077 or something. And people were smiling and happy. And I had this thought in my dream, wow, we humans have finally figured it out. We've gotten our act together. The future isn't bad. And it was a wonderful dream and it made me happy for several months. Maybe I, in some way, I was anticipating what was going on. But it's hard to feel that way. You know, the dream is faded in a little, in, in sense. And it's mostly how insanely irrational we are, you know? Mm. You, you, I, I sometimes, I don't know how I, I can, it's hard to explain in words, but whenever I read about North Korea, right? And, and what a miserable, insanely miserable life people live there, right? How controlled it is, how they have no food to eat, how the levels of pollution are insane. I mean, we've got problems, but I'm talking about this particular yeah. country. I'm going, how did we humans ever come to create something like that in which 98% of the population is living the most miserable life and they're maybe not even completely aware of their own misery? What is in us that creates these kind of hells that periodically pop up in history like mushrooms, you know? What are we doing? And so, you know, if we can get our act together about the global warming and certain other issues that are really pressing in on us, you know, maybe 
through science will solve a lot of these problems. There's an aspect of science that I completely adore, which is the ability to look at things realistically and solve problems. If that aspect of science, as opposed to the blind part of science, takes over. So when I had that dream, I was 70% hopeful. Now it's kind of flipping more towards 40% hopeful. I don't know, but maybe you can help me. I don't know, Dave. The meter has changed for you. It's it's moved a little bit. You know, I I am still hopeful. I'm a futurist, and we're at a fork in the road uh, for sure. Uh, but there's a reason it's called hacking, <laughs> because you go back, uh, oh geez, 25 years ago, and hackers got kind of pissed that we couldn't tell what Microsoft was doing on our own computers, much less in the cloud. So they said. Well, we'll just write our own operating system. And today, you and I are, most of what we're doing is running on Linux or a variant of that. Right. And, you know, I am a computer hacker by training. So there's no reason that we cannot assert knowledge and control over our own biology. And when we have that, we have the right and ability to pursue enlightenment and transcendence and things like that. What has me most concerned right now is that there are a bunch of people who have had their prefrontal cortex turned off by fear, which routes thoughts through the amygdala. And they're saying, oh, I will gladly trade my biological autonomy and freedom to evolve (laughs) for the perception of safety. These are the same people who are willing to trade all privacy for a free email account. Uh, And that might not have been a good trade-off, guys. Do you see it now, 15, 20 years later? Um, So... Either people will stand there and say, I'm sorry, this is my body. You don't get to tell me what to eat. You don't get to tell me when to sleep. You don't get to tell me things that you might think are good for me that my automated systems don't feel are good. Because what I believe is that humanity is one organism and that each of us plays a role, just like each cell in your body plays a role. Each cell is its own organism. You take it out, put it in a petri dish and feed it, it'll live but it's stressed because it doesn't have its community. So I'm hopeful that right now enough people will just say, you know what, I've got to be free to try different foods and whatever, because if I did what everyone told me to do in the 70s, I'd be obese and have diabetes (laughs) like most people do now. Gee, that's so weird, and some of us don't. right? And so I don't want conformity, and I don't want uh, everyone to be the same, because we're not meat robots. And as long as everyone, or at least enough people, realize that they're not meat robots, I think there's a great chance for a new golden age. And there's also a great chance for, you know, yes, I for one welcome our new AI overlords, uh, which may very well happen. Um, but if it does, it'll happen with a great deal of violence um, in the world that I really hope uh, doesn't come to to pass. So <laughs> I'm kind of with you. Maybe at 50-50, but that, that's right. Oh, all right. Well, maybe you raise me up towards 50. You know, one thing that happens, because I, I meditate every morning. I've been doing it now for 11 years, and I highly recommend it to any, everyone. But one process that you go through when you're meditating is you become very aware of certain things going on in your brain. You become yeah. more and more self-aware. What I become aware of is how deeply programmed I am, you know? Like certain thoughts pop up and I go, where is that coming from? That's not really coming from me. That's coming from the culture, things about fear, things about anxiety. And so it's kind of eye-opening to realize that we are these creatures that are deeply, deeply programmed by the culture that we're living in. And it's very hard to get out of that. It's very hard to be aware of it. One of the things I'm teaching my kids is... Uh, to look at anything, whether they agree with it or not, 
Like, what are the techniques of manipulation that were used in that to make you think something? Like, how is it trying to right. program you? And, and to do the same with their teachers, and their teachers must hate me. But, you know, what, what is the school trying to tell you that they aren't telling you they're trying to tell you? Um, right. Unfortunately, it creates a great sense of outrage in teenagers when they see, oh my God, they're trying to do that to me. I'm like, yep, welcome to the world. How do you deal with that sense of outrage? Like, like you dumbass, did you really just say that on a national news network and expect anyone to believe it? And so there's that outrage. And then, oh my God, they believed it. The other outrage. How do you deal with that in your meditation? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, so I've got to kind of figure out what's productive outrage and what's not productive outrage. Like there are wow. things, things that you cannot control. That's just part of human stupidity. I think there was some, scientist who had a great quote he goes i now believe in eternity or infinity because i've witnessed the infinity of human stupidity <laughs> right I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of it but I that was that. the gist of it so um you know there's and you can you can't change that right that's just built into humans for whatever reason and i initially my third book was initially going to be about the history of human stupidity Instead, I wrote about warfare. So it's still a book that I want to go back to at some point. So you can't really control that. You have to suffer fools gladly, as it says in the Bible sometimes. Yeah. But then there, you do need to be outraged. You know, when I was a teenager, I felt a lot of, I had a lot of anger because there was this incredible split. Now, I'm older than you, Dave. So I'm growing up in the 60s and 70s. Those are my formative years. And, um, you know, I'm seeing my parents' generation and the world that I'm living in, and there's this insane disconnect going on between the two realms, much like people now, young people now, are experiencing Generation Z and, and millennials with boomers, you know? Like, your world isn't my world, and what's going on here? And I was really angry and outraged continually, much more than I am now when I look back at my old journals, at the world. And I think being angry as a teenager is a good thing. I think I wish there were more angry yeah. teenagers, right? Um, so, <laughs> because it, it, yes. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't do things unless we're motivated, unless we're emotionally invested in it, right? So, if people are kind of half-assedly saying, "Yeah, there's some problems in the world, maybe we should kind of work on it," now there's a party going on next door. I'm going to go to the party, kind of thing. You have to be have enough emotional engagement in the issue to actually want to change it so i'm all in favor of your teenagers seeing through these games i think that's fantastic i'd like to hear some examples of that you know like here's how advertisements here's how facebook is manipulating you and they go ah you're right you know i think that's a great thing and i'm all in favor of it wow well I, the idea that we need more teenage anger um it's it's about time that someone said that, and I appreciate that you just did. Um, I, I did a post recently, and I followed through on it. I said, guys, I, I was going to wait till my kids were 16, but there's three movies the kids need to see right now, even if they're 12. And yeah, it's uncomfortable to watch them with the 12-year-old, but I did. One is Braveheart. Uh -huh. This is what one angry person can do when you wrong exactly, them the wrong way. Exactly. Yeah. And I wish everyone in every government putting you know um, illegal things in place right now, all of them need to watch that movie and know the power yes. of a pitchfork. Because That's a great idea. <laughs> so yeah, kids need to see that, that and say one person what they did do and what they still can do. 
And this is why we treat others with respect. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next one was Gattaca. Uh huh. I've not Gat- seen Gattaca. Oh, it's uh, it's probably 15, 20 years old. It's a book about a world where everyone's DNA is swept all the time. And if your parents manipulated your DNA, you were guaranteed to be an astronaut and do all these things. And if you were a natural, oh, wow. you were a second oh, class. So it's very much around medical um, tyranny and how one person basically cheats the entire system and wins. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rent that tonight. It's wow, a fantastic thing about just even in the yeah. face of overwhelming surveillance, someone does it. And the final one, V for Vendetta, right? Yeah. Again, one man <laughs> and some of these women, uh, I suppose, but yeah. um, in each of these, it is a man. Men tend to do war more than women. Sorry, women. <laughs> That's yeah. just how it is. Yeah. Women tend to stop war more than men. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... So those are there for my kids to see to, specifically to create anger instead of fear. And right. the, the problem is you might not be popular if you're that angry kid. But the other thing, and I want your advice on not just for my kids, but for the world. You can be angry and, uh, okay, I'm going to piss off everybody right now. Greta Grundleberg, I, I forget her name. The, the one who complains a lot and skips school to change the world. Um, right. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes, Greta, I know what you're talking about. Thunderbird or something. Yeah, she's. I think she's Swedish, um, which is funny because my wife is Swedish. Um, People on the Upgrade Collective and live audience are going, um, I can't believe you just said that. But (laughs) um, here's the deal. Be like the guy who's the same age as her who said, I'm going to figure out a flotation system to pull plastic out of the ocean. And he did something. But standing up and saying, something should be done. Dude, fuck you. Okay, I'm tired of that. You go do it. Right, I am doing right, everything I right, can do. Right, Everyone right. do it. How do we teach people right. to go do stuff instead of complain about stuff? I mean, you you know so much. You're the master. Tell me, Robert. It brings tears to my eyes to think about that because so much of what you know I wrote about, particularly in my book on strategy and warfare, mm-hmm. is that if you really are interested in change, you have to become strategic. Yeah. Right, you enter the realm of strategy. So we humans have millions of ideas. Every single human being ever born has some idea. But to make that idea reality is a bridge that you have to cross, and that bridge is strategy. You have to slowly cross it to to figure out how can I get to that point of changing the world? Because what you're really interested in is not inventing your emotions, but actually creating the change that you want. That's the difference between bullshitters and people who just want to vent, right? And now we have a world in social media where it's so easy to show your moral outrage. It's so easy to say, I'm taking an ecological vacation in the Caribbean. Is it really that ecological? I, I doubt that. But, you know, it's so, so you're invested in, in the appearance of virtue, yeah. virtue signaling, as we now call it, as opposed to the reality. You know, if I were to contribute you know, like like Jeff Bezos or someone, so many billions of dollars to the environment. I wouldn't want, why put my name out there? That just shows that I wanted everyone to recognize. I just want yeah. attention. Do things quietly and get things done. You know, I re- read an article recently about the future of fusion as a new form of energy. And don't get, I, I'm going to, you know, mess up the science of it. I go, Whoa. Here were scientists, I remember them talking about it 30 years ago, right? I don't know if you believe in it, but it could be an incredible game changer if it does happen. It's about the ability to create 
massive amounts of energy from something very small and easy, and it's not going to have a lot of waste with it. Um, people 30, 40 years ago were talking about it, and everyone thought they were quacks. This will never happen. But in that meantime, lots of people invested money in it, and they've created you know, these million-dollar facilities in England and here in the United States, and they're going to eventually crack it. Well, that's brilliant in my mind. Actually trying to – that is going to change the history of humanity if it actually gets done wow. more than anybody yeah. ranting at the UN. <laughs> You're not a believer well, in it? No, I'm laughing because at the more than everyone ranting at the UN, that complaining something should be done. Meanwhile, there's someone in a lab somewhere who's like, I just did it. Unfortunately, yeah. I, I was laughing earlier in our conversation. You talked about uh, like something along the lines of, of rational science or capital S religious science versus real science, the science of inquiry and discovery versus the science yeah. of how many people quoted me. Right now, when people put medical science papers with real science and statistical values and real stuff from institutions, if you post those onto LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, pretty much anywhere but Telegram. By the way, guys, Asprey Official is my Telegram handle. Uh, anywhere but Telegram, they get flagged and deleted. I've had videos with a million views deleted with no notification by Instagram. Right? And like, whoa, those were real things. There, there was nothing wrong with them. So I'm actually of the opinion, not only that the things you're talking about with cold fusion and other alternative energy things, not only will they happen, they have happened, and you didn't hear about them through that same kind of network. Right. Now, do you think right. I'm crazy? Very true. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, we're, we're not aware of how much our information is filtered through other sources. I mean, why do they call it media? It's because they're mediating something for you. You're not experiencing it directly. The opposite of media is immediate where you're immediately in touch with the facts, you're in engaging with it one-on-one, -on -one. they're mediating all the information for you that's, that's locked into the name. It is something I've never thought about. Yeah, mediation. They're sitting between you and reality is, is what's going yeah. on there. Uh, yeah. And so I'm, uh, I am now becoming way more conscious, in part from reading your books, but just more conscious of what lens do I use to look at reality. And what I'm finding is that there is, normally with a Venn diagram, you're looking for overlap, right? And you would see an overlap between even, you know, Fox and CNN. And, uh, you know, there, there's some sort of reality basis. But it is so different when I look at the mainstream social media and I look at what I see from credible sources elsewhere. The Venn diagrams don't even touch anymore. It, it's like a schism, like, like schizophrenia uh, for a society. Um, in any of your historical meanderings, I, I know you like Japan, has that happened before? Exactly what? Just give me a better feel for it. Well, the, it's this where, where, where normally there's enough of a common ground that you can take two sides in a war or two political parties. You can say, well, at least we agree on this. And this is this is a factual thing. So let's start there. But when I look at you know the, the story that I hear on any of the eight media-owned companies uh, in the U.S., it is all the same. And then I go to a bunch of other sites that are now essentially banned from being mentioned there. There isn't any overlap. And I say, okay, well, are these a bunch of bullshitters? But they're not. These are people with medical degrees and lots of letters after their name and careers for decades saying, I'm seeing this. But 
when I look, I can't find a common ground at all between them, right? And so, well, has that happened in the past where the, the common ground sure. was gone? I'm not sure if I'm getting it quite right, but I think the first thing that came into my mind was the Soviet Union. So I'm very interested in Joseph Stalin. Don't ask me why. Something about me. I devour books about him. And that period when he was accumulating power is fascinating in the most evil sense of the word. But you enter a period where there is such an insane disconnect from reality, where everything has to be filtered through the God, which is the Communist Party, and the God that is Joseph Stalin. And that is the only reality people can absorb. And even scientists now have to take their theories and kind of bend them so that they fit into Stalin's narrative. So the reality that is going on in the Soviet Union, where millions of people are starving because of a five-year program, a five-year plan, like literally... Mm -hmm. 30 million people died of starvation, one of the great um, ignored crimes in history, right? People are living in utter misery in the 30s. He's killing all of the generals. And meanwhile, the Nazis are invading. And and half the reason that the war went so badly initially was because he had so bungled it. Mm-hmm. And yet nobody is in that entire country is aware of the reality that's going on. A few, a handful kind of like your V for Vendetta or or the uh, Braveheart, a handful of people are aware of it and they're deeply disturbed and they're either put in gulags or they emigrate or they come up with a strategy for kind of disguising themselves. And it's fascinating to read about such people. But you've got this, and I talked a little bit about North Korea a little bit, you've got this reality and people are in a whole other way so that the two diagrams aren't meeting are, are so apart it's it's appalling i don't know and then maybe i think of like the french revolution where you've got you know the aristocracy is living in this one world it's completely divorced from reality and and they go and they're kind of moving like towards disaster and they're not even aware of it and then it kind of hits them and then the king is beheaded one of the one of the most dramatic moments in the history of mankind i'm afraid to say so Anyway, those are the two things that come to my yeah. mind. Yeah, the French Revolution comes to my mind there as well with the, the let them eat cake, just not knowing. Yeah. And a similar thing here, as we're recording this, um, yesterday, uh, Elon Musk made $36 billion in just one day. <laughs> and, and that's more than most people make in a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like, are, are we reaching those levels? I, I don't know. I, I would really yeah. rather not the world go through that, but there just becomes it's a point it. where you have that much money. Like, Hey everybody, like I'm doing something really good and expensive on your behalf and not the charitable right. thing like Bill Gates, where it feeds back and in, into your own pockets, right, right, which is right. something to, it's an anti-monopoly strategy from Rockefeller, but it's just more like, Hey, um, you know, the, I have so much here. Like, I'm going to do something that really makes a difference for the world because you have the power to do what we talked about earlier. Don't just get pissed, right? Use the anger as a spark to do something that works instead of to complain louder. Uh, so I, I feel like the if I was in that class, and I'm not. Some people think I'm like some billionaire or whatever. I'm doing pretty well, <laughs> thank you, but I'm no nowhere near there. But if I ever get there, I can tell you. <laughs> Some very good things are going to happen in the world because what do you do with a hundred yeah. billion dollars? It's, uh, it's insane. I, yeah. I completely agree with you. I sometimes look at that here in Hollywood in Los Angeles, and I see 
like $400 million was spent on some Marvel movie. And I go, okay, you've entertained people around the world. That's kind of, I guess that's good. I don't know. But what could you imagine what you could do just here in Los Angeles with that $400 million? What we could yeah. do about the insane homeless situation going on here? You know, well, I, was, I mean, I was thinking with $400 million, the government could probably fund another set of regulations about the height of speed bumps in California. Cause they're, they're really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're not a fan of speed bumps, I can tell. Uh, or just the over uh, the, the amount of crazies I've dealt with as an entrepreneur in California has been absurd. Okay. But it, yeah. it, I'm with you there. You take $400 million and you could fix school lunch for every child for an entire year, yeah. which would change the trajectory yeah. of their entire lives just at, at that age. You, know, you get them when they're six or seven and you're like, hey, look, your brain's forming. Why don't we give it some good fat? But exactly. Th those sorts of things are just out there. And you're in a position in your life where you've lived long enough to see the patterns and you study them more than most people alive, which is really cool. Um, the other people say who have achieved great financial success, you know, maybe some of them were lucky my experience. And I know a great number of those people, they've actually worked their asses off, right? They've sacrificed huge amounts, maybe of personal development in order to focus on, you know, working 16 hours a day. I know that was the story of me in my twenties. Right. And so instead of evolving so that now they have the power to do good, but they haven't accumulated the wisdom to do good in maybe 48 laws of power, laws of human nature. What is the pipeline to help people who are in a position to change the world right now to, to what is the pipeline to tap into their reality and help them see what to do that that's useful? I know it's a hard question. Yeah, it is hard. <laughs> you mean in the books that I've written? It just from the uh, you, you've in order to read or in order to write your books, you've accumulated a huge amount of knowledge that isn't in the books that was in your creation right. process, and you've got what's right. in the books, and you've already just distilled all of them into your daily laws book. So your brain right. has got to be primed of any human alive to say, oh, if you were to talk to someone with an absurd amount of resources who could do something to make the world better, how would you turn the light bulb on for them? So that they go, oh, yeah, of course I should do that. Well, uh, boy, that's that's a thorny question. I mean, like yeah. if I were to go to Elon Musk and to get him to try and donate $80 billion to just ending global warming or something like that. Oh, I he mean, did. So Elon has... Oh, that's right, recently. Yeah, I, yeah. I know because the first $50,000 for that prize and the speech that got it to be an X prize, that was my $50,000. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so really? He funded it three years later. Yeah. But the, the first oh, step wow. of a prize That's... is raising a half a million dollars and convincing a room full of successful people to donate enough money to fund the creation of the prize. But yeah, it, that first first donation well, there was mine <laughs> for the well, Carbon Capture I mean, X Prize. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited. Thank Congratulations. You're welcome. So Good Elon's job. being the wrong example because he put his money where his mouth is. And thank you, Peter D. Okay, I'm sorry. Hear this. Um, so yeah. I'm going to give him a pass. So he could do more than a hundred million, but all right. So of, of all the, of all the, the, you know, multi-billionaires to pick on, I, I think there's, you know, yeah. a couple more others, you know, but well, just yeah. an, anyone who's, who's phenomenally yeah. absurdly wealthy looking at, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Most of them don't have well, that, that mindset because they haven't done the work you've done to understand their minds and their brains. Cause you can't do that and build a multi-billion dollar empire because uh, I know, because I've 
built hundred million dollar plus companies. It's very hard to carve out time and have the self-awareness and the reflection and you know, go for a walk in the forest, you know, with a board of directors breathing down your neck. So how, how do we, how do we switch those guys into you better do something now mode? Well, it's hard because as you know, I've devoted several of my books to the problems of persuasion and influence and human beings have natural resistance and defensiveness. So if you come to them in a whiny, complaining, you're a bad person, come on, get on with the program here and be something positive, their reactions can be, okay, sure, you're right, but then they're, they're going to inwardly rebel against you, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the 48 laws of power manipulative way to get them to sign off to the good things, which is to appeal to their grandiosity and to say, look, your name is going to be behind this incredible thing. This is going to be your legacy, right? I'm not going to sit here and go, I'm not going to begin my pitch by, you're a bad person. You need to change or make them feel guilty. I'm going to go, I'm going to begin. You're a great person. You've accomplished amazing things. Now you're in your 40s, your 50s. You're not going to live forever. Can you imagine if your greatness that already exists was associated with this incredible project that ends up, you know, funding something that changes the course of, of human history and civilization. Your name is going to be associated with it. As, you know, feed their ego a little bit. Don't worry about that. But then the non-manipulative, less 48 laws of power approach is, is doing the same thing, but not quite so manipulative, which is you do have a legacy in life, right? You don't live forever. You want your name associated with something greater than 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 you know your, your your short little life right and the feeling that you're 70 years old and you've only thought about yourself and your family and your money and and your own things you know that can be kind of depressing but think of it in a higher sense if you can appeal to someone's more kind of spiritual side if they if that exists and say you know this is your chance to, to, to actually contribute something really important and meaningful, this will be your legacy. This is how people will remember you, right? So it comes down to kind of the same thing, but depending on people's own proclivities. So when you approach people to fund your idea, whatever that may be, you have to tailor your pitch to who they are. It's not a cookie cutter thing. Some people you have to kind of feed their ego a little bit, other people, if you feed their ego, they get their backs up. They're going, you're feeding my ego, man. I'm not an egomaniac. You know, you can, I, I'm, a, I'm actually more a saintly person. I think so you have to be very attuned to the kind of mindset of the people that you're trying to persuade. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. I think you just gave a, a master class in how to approach a successful person to get something done. So thank you. Yeah. And I've lost track of the number of times I've seen people say, you have more than I do, therefore, (laughs) judgy, 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 right? And at that point, I'm like, look, ban and delete. I don't need this. It it doesn't help me. It doesn't help you. It is classical envy, right? And the fact is, there are many people who are much better off than I am, and I'm much better off than most people right now, and I've worked my ass off for it, and I'm doing good in the world, and I'm going to keep doing that. And I feel really good about that, and I'm employing hundreds of people 
across the things I built, and I feel good about that, and I'm not going to apologize for it, but I am going to do good. You and, should. You should have to apologize for that. <laughs> I, I'm not going to, uh, but that when people approach me that way, you know, I, I'm entitled because whatever, it's like, no, but if you approach me and say, Hey, I would love some help. I'm working on doing this because it matters. And I think, you know, whether it's financial or usually it's advice, I'm not that heavy of an investor right now uh, until I sell one of my companies, but um, it, it's enough to go, yes. And I've helped a lot of small entrepreneurs for that reason. But your little little monologue there about, hey, do it because it matters. And with a little bit of do it because it matters to your ego, frankly, because that's how salespeople work. That's how you do it. But to come and say, I'm entitled, you have to give it to me. Dude, you're probably not going to get an ear. You just won't. So no. your wisdom, no. thank you for sharing it. That's how we get guys like Elon to say, yes, I'll put $100 million into capturing carbon. I think that was the biggest X prize to date, right? And we can do this. We have the science. Uh, we just have to have the motivation and the freedom to be inquisitive and to see both sides of an argument. Anytime someone tries to delete one side of an argument from your reality, um, they're probably not working in your best interests. Definitely. Any, any thoughts on what to do about censorship? in your, your studies of history and human behavior? Well, um, you know, the, 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 the moments in history that we applaud the most, that we kind of look at as golden ages. I mean, I could name a few. I would think of 5th century BC Athens, the first kind of true, there were other forms of democracy before that, but kind of a very, very... Um, a live form of democracy, or we look at Renaissance Italy in a very particular period, or we look at early on in the United States when the country was first forming in the late 18th century, or we look at the 1920s. These are periods in which, ironically enough, the communist Chinese were the opposite of that called let a thousand flowers bloom. It's a period where all kinds of different divergent opinions occur, are kind of coming together and nobody is censoring it, nobody is mediating it, and there's no single form of authority imposing itself on 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 the on the zeitgeist, on on the mindset of people. And I know I wrote that in The Laws of Human Nature, and my editor came back, well, I don't think of fifth century BC as this in Athens as this open creative time. And I go, well, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, you're a very smart person, but this was a culture <laughs> that was incredibly open to influences from India, from ancient Egypt. They were a seafaring culture mm -hmm. that was open to all sorts of influences. And the amount of, I know they eventually put Socrates to death. So that was kind of already starting to decay towards the end of the century. Yeah. But it was a period of incredible debate and openness. So these are our golden ages. This is what we look to as if we look back on our own child and we go, this is the human ideal. It's where, People are allowed to have divergent opinions, and it creates this kind of healthy environment. In nature, if you study biology and ecosystems, the most vibrant ecosystems are the ones where they have the most diversity of life. It kind of creates the self-fulfilling prophecy where there's diversity, there's more diversity, and then things there's a kind of a feedback system, and it gets healthier and healthier. It's the same in culture. When we have diversity, when we have divergence, when we have different opinions, there is this kind of healthy landscape. 
The same thing happens in the human mind. The human mind is a landscape. If you only get your source of information from one source like that and you're very closed, that landscape is like a desert. There's nothing growing. There's not even a cactus anywhere to be mm-hmm. seen. But if you open your mind up to all sorts of ideas from all different sources, you're creating the Amazon forest in your own head. And it's incredibly vibrant. And new ideas will come to you. So trying to mold people into a single way of looking at the world is to create the most sterile form of culture. And what is the opposite of, of these periods I just mentioned? Well, there'll be periods like Soviet Union or mm-hmm. communist China or maybe even to some degree 1950s in the United States under the McCarthy era, where people are so afraid and anxious and they all have to conform to the same opinions. Culture becomes totally stifled. So that's my response to the censorship issue. Got it. So it, it, the people doing the censorship think that they're achieving something good with it, but what they're doing is, uh, is not so good. Did I, did I misinterpret your question somehow? No, I, I think you you got it right. I, I was. Uh, I, I wonder, what do you do about censorship? It. It's a it's a broad oh. question, uh, but because you're not just a student of history, there are lots of people who are historians. Uh, but you're looking at this through a lens of of, of human behavior, right? Uh, which is not how everyone looks at history, at least not in in my experience. Uh, so I I think your your take on when have we seen this before and what's happened every time that's illuminating for a, either a person or or an entity like a company or a government which is a group of people if they're looking to turn on censorship and let's face it guys there is a ton of censorship happening right now <laughs> whether we want to call it whatever we want to call it it, it is a fact uh, and the people doing that, they believe it's in their interests or maybe everyone's interests, but all of history and all the things that you've seen are saying, didn't turn out that well for any of those uh, those people doing it. And I don't think it's going to turn out well this time, even if we build some automated censorship enforcement engines, which is what's... Well, what, what, what's happening now is um, you have persuasion and you have dissuasion. And we now live in an era of dissuasion where most people are censoring, self-censoring themselves. Mm-hmm. So you're massively dissuaded from saying something that's going to go against the social codes and the conventions, the, the woke conventions, whatever word you want to put on it. So you're doing the self-censoring. To me, that's a lot more pernicious in some ways because, right. you know, yeah, anyway. Well, I, I have learned to say it without saying it pretty well on Instagram. At least half my posts don't get flagged with a warning that's irrelevant, even though I'm talking about it and I'm having great oh. fun. Uh, it's it's subversive. <laughs> we'll be really straightforward. Yeah. And I would encourage everyone well, you- listening, you know, instead of self-censoring, uh, which is the first thing that's coming to mind if you're a normal human, uh, you can say, instead of not saying it, I'm going to play a game of saying it without saying it. And man, mm-hmm. that drives people nuts. Uh, I, I'm all really for that. Does. I love that. I love that. But by the it, way, have you seen what my... Being, what? Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, 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 no. go ahead. Oh, okay. Have you seen at my restaurants, uh, we're accepting the new vitamin D passport. Um, if your vitamin D levels are above 60 uh, and you have proof of that, uh, then we'll gladly give you a cup of coffee for free with well, whatever you purchase. I got to go check my vitamin D levels. They're <laughs> probably pretty high because I take it every day, but I don't know. I suspect and as I, much. Uh, and but I live that in is, LA with sun shining a lot. But you anyway. should be all right. But you still need to supplement in LA. Uh, I do. I do. It's funny because that's one of those things you can't talk about anymore. Even though there's hundreds of studies, 
Uh, and I, I can't say what the studies are about right here because then we'd be facing censorship as well. But you can talk about it, but only in the absence of talking about any other, you know, current. Really? We can't even talk about the benefits of vitamin D? We'll get to that point now? You can talk about it. However, um, you can talk about it, the benefits of it in context to anything that might be catching. You mean like COVID? <laughs> oh, no. I, I was, I, I'm sorry that got beeped out. Chris, can you make sure we beep over what he said there? But but literally like that. So the transcript of this, if it says that in it, they'll be like, oh, you said vitamin D and beep. <laughs> then the little well, engines pick it up. And then they don't right. fully suppress it. What they do is they take the reach down to 10% of what it was before. And the search engines, right. at least if you're on Google, right, I'm find sorry. it. I, 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 okay, I'll, I'll censor myself <laughs> from now on. I'm sorry. Don't even worry. Was- literally, we'll put a beep over it. It'll be hilarious. Uh, but okay. like this is the kind of self-censorship that you and me and everyone is dealing with right now. But we just said it without saying it in a way that makes it even right. worse. So that's part of my strategy that may be you know, the wrong 48 Laws of Power strategy. But I feel like it was influenced by reading your books. So thank you. No, no, it's the totally, <laughs> totally right 48 Laws of Power okay. strategy. I'm all in favor of that. I even discussed that strategy in, in particular with one person in the Middle Ages who couldn't say heretical things but found a way to write a book which he appears to condemn heretical things, but it's written in such a way that the heretical ideas are so much more exciting. You know, <laughs> so he was able to subvert the church in that very interesting way. And I love it. I love it. Kind of like uh, let's go, Brandon. Do you know about that? No, you got me there. Sorry. Oh, that I'm sorry. Right. I hate it when I have to admit my social ignorance. But. It's a, it's a modern one. So, a crowd was shouting F you to the name of a certain uh, presidential person. Um, and the announcer didn't want to say what they were saying. Cause Oh, apparently the crowd is saying, let's go Brandon. Even though the cr- crowd was basically saying F you uh, to uh, a president um, and expressing their discontent, but we don't, we don't show crowds expressing discontent on, on large media anymore. So now on social media, all over the place, people are saying, let's go, Brandon, which oh, is pretty wow. much saying, I'm tired of censorship. I'm tired of, you know, all sorts of things that they don't like. And I'm able, wow. I think both parties are completely like misguided. They're interested in power. They're not interested in helping yeah. you and me. So I, I don't care. <laughs> like vote for either one. You're effed either way. Like we have to fix it ourselves. But what I, um, um, what I was just thinking there was let's go Brandon is exactly what you're oh. saying. Like, no, no, I was oh. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about this, but everyone knows. Oh. So maybe it's a bad example. I see. That's great. That's a good example. <laughs> Thank you for educating me here. I've learned something. Yeah, if anyone says let's go Brandon, then uh, now you know. Okay, and now I, I know. I am fighting the urge to become politicized, right? Because because uh, what I just said, I, I know neither party or there's more than two parties in case people forgot. Neither one has my back. What is your advice for people to stay grounded, centered, and rational when they're getting pulled to be in one direction versus another direction for political parties, for nationalism, for religion, whatever, the, our whole desire to be part of a group, even if it works against us? Well, the, the key is, is awareness. I keep I'm sounding like a broken record, but if you can be aware of how easily you are sucked into these things. So the first part of the equation is don't think that you, smart Dave Asprey or smart Robert Greene, is immune to these kinds of pushes and pulls that are out there in the media or in politics, because you're not. You're a human being. You're just as easily duped. You're just as easily 
have your emotions played on. So the first thing is don't ever think that you are an exception, that you are immune, that you are so enlightened that you see through everything because that is you're deceiving yourself. And that form of self-deception is, is fatal, right? It's your blind spot. So no matter who you are, no matter where you got your college degree from, no matter how much money you make, you are susceptible to manipulations, to con games, to things that are playing on your emotions. All right, so start from that equation and then develop the muscle to be able to analyze it instead of to be able to get emotionally you know, pulled in to this. So you step back. You know, I often do this when I watch the news on television, which I rarely ever do anymore. You know, mm. what is it that they're playing on? What is the game they're playing? And how are they making money off of my outrage? How are they filtering the information? How are they editing it and tailoring it? So you want to develop analytical skills primarily, right? So you want to be able to learn how to see through the manipulations. So one thing I talk about, in the laws of human nature, as I talk about biases in the human brain, and I mentioned one before, the confirmation bias, which is very powerful. Another one that I talk about is the conviction bias. And this is a very, very uh, important idea, I think, um, where we think that somebody who expresses themselves with so much conviction, with so much righteousness, with so much sense of being on the right side of history, we can't help but get um, caught up in that because we think that if they're so emotional and they're so full of conviction, it must be true. They must be feeling that and it must come from someplace real. They wouldn't be deceiving us with that. How can they be deceiving it when they appear to be so excited and emotional, right? Uh -huh. So when we see people on television, I know I do this, and I see people kind of with their angry face, so certain of the truth, because quite frankly, as someone who reads a lot of books, I'm never really certain that I know something. I'm continually thinking of my ignorance and it's pretty wide, my ignorance. The more I know, the less I actually know. So when I see somebody on television or some academic who's so 100% sure of the truth, that's where my bullshit little antennae start rising up, rising up and, go, ding, ding, ding. and they start analyzing it and figuring out where the bullshit is coming from. Why? They're trying to, so the form of the, the conviction thing is actually a form of self-deception. So if you, if you d believe in something, but you're not quite sure of it, you're going to try and go the extra mile to convince yourself that it's true. And then you're going to be yelling at people, et cetera, in that kind of dictator-like way to convince yourself as well that you think that it's true, right? Wow. So you're going through a form of self-deception and that allows you to appear so animated and excited, etc. So when you see people who display that behavior pattern of they are so convinced of the truth, that's when you know that there's some kind of game going on, some kind of manipulation. These are just a few ideas that I would throw out. But that that overly convict, uh, convinced person, it, it's so true when, when there's no room for questioning. Uh, and that's why that very word misinformation, it, it's possible, like likely wrong information, but there's a little bit of smarminess in there. That That's kind of a red flag for me where there can be no discussion there because even though it's information, it's mis, 
But what, what you've done in this, this whole interview, Robert, and I, I want to thank you for this, you've convinced me um, that I'm ignorant, uh, I'm easily duped, <laughs> I'm susceptible to crowds, uh, and I'm a master of self-deception just like you. So, so thank you. I, 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 I forgot that one. You, you remind me of one thing I didn't add in the last thing, which because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and my brain isn't functioning as well. But um, is the idea that your ideas come from conformity. We never like to think that. We like to think, I thought of that myself. You know, I'm an yeah. independent. I'm a maverick. I'm not conforming. I don't get my ideas because somebody else said it. That's another blind spot. It is. 95% of your ideas do come from the culture, come from the, from the atmosphere, from what other people are thinking. Because humans are primed. We're viral creatures. We get caught up in the ideas and emotions of other people. So don't think that you're, you're never as independent a thinker as you imagine including that is, myself. That is so true. Uh, even the myth of the lone inventor, a friend of mine who runs the IP stuff at Stanford, uh, Mark says, you know, Stratford wrote a paper saying, here's all the times in the world. There's almost always three inventors in three garages at the same time doing the same thing. We don't know why, sure. but the world is sure. complex like that. So, yeah. Robert, uh, it's always so much fun to be able to ask you the deep questions. I, I really greatly appreciate the work you've done over your life. I cannot wait to read oh. um, the, um, the Law of the Sublime that's coming out. Yeah. And I am very happy to be able to spend a year going through the, the daily laws that you just oh, published. Sure. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. God, I always enjoy our conversations. They're, they're the best. Guys, if you want to learn more about Robert Greene, if you lived under a rock and you don't know who he is, even though 50 Cent knows who he is, you should go to robertgreenofficial.com and that'll take you to all of his YouTubes, all of his different books, all of his cool stuff. I'll just tell you, if you've never taken the time to read or listen to any of his books, you are missing out. He's one of the living masters of understanding how humans work. And it's always fun to interview him. In fact, Robert, you're always welcome. Anytime you have a standing invitation to come on the show, anytime you have something you want to you know, blast out there, I'm here for you, brother. Thank you. thank you. All right. Thank you, Dave. I, I'll take that offer up. Thank you. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.